The British Constitution provides that taxation and representation shall go together. Therefore, women taxpayers are entitled to vote. I have a dream today. Let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. Man, I've got a lot on my mind today. Uh, welcome to the Only Human Podcast. Here's the deal, what I've been thinking about. Uh, I'm not even sure we should shoot this podcast now. Just prior to uh, to kicking off here, where we want to talk about the life cycle of ideas, uh, I asked my uh, artificial intelligence app, uh, and I pay for the good ones, if humans really need to come up with new ideas anymore since uh, you know they can do it for us. And, and here's what it told me almost word for word. I, I want to read this to you. This is my response when I said, do humans need to have ideas anymore? From an artificial intelligence perspective, the rapid evolution and capabilities of AI systems could be perceived as rendering the traditional human ideation process obsolete. Machines like me, notice the pronoun, can generate, analyze, and optimize ideas at a pace and scale unfathomable to the human brain. With access to vast repositories of knowledge and the ability to learn from countless data points instantaneously, AI can potentially offer more creative and official, more creative and efficient solutions to a wide range of problems. By this logic, humans might be better off focusing on areas where emotional intelligence, empathy, and physical presence are paramount, leaving the task of idea generation to machines that can outperform you without the constraints of time, fatigue, or cognitive biases. All right then, um, that just sort of pissed me off. Um, should we even continue this episode on the importance of human ideas? I think so. And I think this is how I wanna proceed. With all due respect to my AI apps brilliance and ultimate potential to eliminate the human race. Here's what I have to say. First of all, you are not a me, you are still an it. Human ideas brought you into this world and I think we can still take you out of it. That might be a really good idea given all the warnings I'm hearing. But listen, this podcast isn't about artificial intelligence, it's about ideas. But I want, want, I want to say one last thing to my listeners. It's doubtful that ChatGPT or any of the other BARD or any of the other big artificial intelligence units care about you as an individual, right? They don't have, using its own words, the emotional intelligence or empathy to care about us puny humans. So enough about AI. Um, we're going to deal with that on a future podcast. You can tell I'm pretty passionate about it. Let's talk about the power of ideas from a human perspective. Today we're going to look, and I think it's a fascinating idea that an idea takes. Just my bias is, is that ideas are alive, right? They are, they're conceived, they're born, they grow, they have a teenage years, they get old, and, and sometimes they maybe die, but sometimes maybe they're immortal, um, along with the people that came up with them. So I want to get started with a quote from John Steinbeck, uh, who said, ideas are like rabbits. You get a couple of them and you learn how to handle them 
and pretty soon you have a dozen of them hopping around. So I know a lot of folks that that are sort of consumers of media, and I'm one of them. I, I spend an, e an hour or two in the evening watching some junk sci-fi or reading a book, uh, and I'm a consumer. But in every one of those instances, I never go very far without a, uh, without a pen and a notebook next to me because these things all generate ideas in my head. So what can we do? Do we need to come up with ideas, first of all? And so segment one uh, of the podcast here, I'm calling Conception and the Birth of an Idea. Where do, where do ideas actually come from? How are they conceived? How are they born? Um, what nutrients do they need to flourish when they're newborn ideas? Um, I, got, I got an example I want to use, um, maybe two of them, but I'll stick with this one because it's, it's a long story of an idea that's gone through the whole life cycle, right? And, and that is uh, on the topic of airmanship. Most of you know I, I'm a pilot. Uh, a long time ago, uh, I mentioned this on an earlier podcast, uh, there was a, a fatal accident involving two of my former students and the accident investigation came out and one of the lines of that accident investigation said, this was simply a failure of airmanship. And so that puzzled me because I wasn't really sure what that meant. And I brought it up to the accident investigation board president and he looked at me like I had two heads. In fact, he said something pretty, pretty rude. He said, uh, weren't you one of their instructors, Tony? I said, yes, yes, General, I was. And he goes, well, if you don't know what airmanship is, maybe we need to add another causal factor to the investigation. Wow. At least he threw the spear in my chest, right? Um, but he planted the seed. And I, I needed to know, was I the only pilot in the world that didn't understand what this pretty vague term meant? And so that was the beginning. That was when the seed was planted for this idea of airmanship. A lot of ideas, and I'll continue with that example as we go through the life cycles, but a lot of ideas tend to spring from our minds as flashes of inspiration, often on their own. And this is often called the aha moment, right? Or the, what I prefer to call it is the awakening. But they're influenced by a lot of different things, right? Uh, Newton supposedly had an apple fall on his head. Uh, Archimedes, the great mathematician who said, give me a big enough lever and I can move the world. Um, obviously, he was sitting around something and prying it or something when he, when he began to do the math of leverage. So for me, when I realized that airmanship was vague, and it probably shouldn't be if we're going to put it in an accident investigation and stain the reputation of two good men with it, uh, that was when I started to look into uh, what it might mean. And there is a bunch of ways I did that. Being a social science guy, I conducted surveys and with over 400 pilot inputs, uh, over 40 different variations on what airmanship meant. So that was my aha moment. Wow, I'm not the only one that doesn't get it. Everybody's got their own individual idea here. What can we do to bring those together, right? So all of a sudden the idea is going from birth into this idea of how, how should we make this grow, right? And I gotta tell you, when I got that first set of results, it, it was really an emotional high. It wasn't just validation that I wasn't the only dumb guy out there that didn't understand the term. It was, there's something that we can do together here, right? There's something that might be needed. And that's, I mean, it's physiochemical. It's a rush of dopamine, right? You, you begin to get excited about it. 
And that excitement continues as an idea matures for a little while, but I don't want to get ahead of myself, right? Let's go back to this idea of the birth, uh, birthplace of, of ideas. There's a lot of things. It may be something like I had, where there's a, a question uh, at an important moment that prompts your curiosity. But a lot of really creative people say, no, it's kind of where you put yourself, right? Think of um, um, Thoreau and Walden and those guys that said, man, I got to be outside. I got to be in nature, right? Uh, think of companies like Google that design their entire office buildings around open spaces and foosball tables and stuff like that that's conducive to people discussing things and coming up with ideas. Now, I'm not a I, I like to think alone. We'll get back to that. But what it what it often means are though ideas come to us in informal ways. A lot of the breakthroughs and insights aren't related to what we're working on, right? They come to us naturally, organically. And in order for that to happen, sometimes for some people, they got to be out in the natural organic world. Uh, there's nothing in the world for me better uh, for thinking than, than sitting outside or going for a long walk. And I think a lot of people are like that. For other people, it might be something different. For example, um, the second area that, that ideas pop from are diverse experiences. You may have heard the term lateral thinking. Lateral thinking means you know, I may be a pilot, but I can think like a teacher, I can think like a doctor, I can think like a naturalist, I can think like a father, like a, a, um, an owner of donkeys, right? I try to bring things from all walks of life into how I think, and that stimulates ideas. Um, a classic example was uh, Steve Jobs, uh, Apple guy, right? Uh, founded Macintosh Computers and all that. One of his hobbies and interests was calligraphy you know, the fancy little writing that people do. Um, and he said that that actually greatly influenced the whole aesthetic experience uh, of Apple products. So that's pretty cool when you think about it. A guy that just liked to draw pretty letters uh, took that experience base and turned it into a product that, that literally changed the world, right? So what does that mean for us? Read wildly, see diverse experiences, cross flow your ideas from your hobbies into your profession, your families, etc. The third and most important factor, I think, in any uh, idea generation, conception of ideas, I guess, is curiosity. At its core, in my humble opinion, curiosity is the deep driver of ideas. Curiosity is when you just go, hey, I wonder why those ants are walking that way. I wonder why... Uh, bumblebees are so big. I don't understand why um, this or that happens, not just in nature, but with people, with families, with, you know, we, we went into uh, the last podcast, why do good people make bad mistakes? My curiosity drove me uh, to find out answers to those questions. So curiosity, I think, is the deep driver of ideation. And when you combine it with diverse experiences, and a willingness to uh, find the spaces where you can think and where ideas can come in. A lot of times you don't have to think to come up with an idea. You just have to relax and open your mind and they pop in there. So I guess to wrap up this first segment, the human mind is naturally creative, but you can make it more creative. Heavily influenced by things like curiosity. Um, it, you don't want to study curiosity or innovation unless you're actually curious about them. 
What you want to do is just stay curious about everyday things. The ideas will, will come. So, okay, we've, we've got an idea. We've born an idea. I, let's go back to my airmanship um, piece. I had this idea that nobody really understands something that might be really important to all of us. So here's where you go from an idea to something more, right? An idea to a concept, right? Um, and this is what I'll call the teenage years of the life cycle of ideas. The transition of a mere thought into something with structure, right? And that's a lot of ground for one sentence. So I want to I wanna give you the example. So I've got now survey results that say airmanship means different things to different people. And I said, well, what should it mean to all of us? Now, I don't believe in uh, um, taking God's name in vain, so I won't. I believe I was divinely inspired to be sitting at the United States Air Force Academy and able to access the deepest vault of information on airmanship that exists anywhere in the world. And it's called the Gimbal Special Collection. Uh, Richard Gimbel was a, a guy that loved aviation. He also had a lot of money. And so he collected everything he could on aviation. Original letters from the Wright brothers. Uh, I could go on and on. Just It's on the sixth floor of the U.S. Air Force Academy Library. It is amazing in its thoroughness. I spent thousands of hours there looking at what the earliest people that flew airplanes or even before they flew airplanes or balloons or any of those things were thinking about it. And, and during that period of time, I was taking notes and reading and making copies of everything. And I discovered that, you know, kind of patterns were emerging here. Back in the early days when technology was not so great and you had to be really good to fly airplanes to stay alive, there were some basic things they had. And so over time, I was able to come up with this model. I call it the airmanship model. I call it the airmanship model. Um, and it basically said skill, proficiency, and discipline are the foundations. Actually, it's discipline, skill, proficiency. And then on top of those foundations, good flyers had a lot of knowledge. They had knowledge of their aircraft for sure, but they also had knowledge of themselves. Um, they had knowledge of the environment. Uh, they had knowledge of the risks that were involved. Uh, they had knowledge of their team, be that their, their maintenance team or other pilots or their friends or the people they were doing air shows for or whomever it was. Um, think of the Wright brothers. That's a pretty good team, even though they didn't always get along. Uh, and at the end of the day, when all of those pillars of knowledge and those foundations were there, you got these magical qualities we all like to claim, which was situational awareness and judgment. And so I built that into a little model and I was kind of writing it up and everything. And, and then the next big miracle happened. And that was um, my boss came down to me and told me I had to go to a conference and present my research. Um, and I had to do it right then, literally pick up your papers, grab a slide or two, go down to the U.S. Academy Airfield. They're going to fly you on a twin otter down to Santa Fe, and you're going to present at the University Aviation Association. So full stop for a second. Let's go back and see what just happened. That idea, that idea that Airmanship was something that we needed to universally understand, then created some, some curiosity into what might that be. I had the opportunity, I had the resources, I had the motivation to pursue it. And so through the teenage years, I sort of stayed focused until I came up with 
this is what I want to be. I, this is what Airmanship is going to be. I'm going to feed this into the world. They're going to love it. Look at how this idea came out of a really tragic situation. That's what I call the awakening. And during that awakening, you are filled with dopamine. You're so excited. And then it smacks into reality. So here's segment three. When you overcome the resistance to your idea. I went to that conference. And I remember walking in. I was still in my my um, uh, green bag flight suit, right? I was a Air Force major at the time. And uh, I walk into this room. It's my time to present. I basically have two uh, overhead slides. This was way back before PowerPoint, right? This was this was in the uh, late 1990s. I had, I guess we used to call those acetate slides, clear slides that you drew, drew on, right? And so I had two of them. I had one with the airmanship model, and then I had one that compared the airmanship model against things we were actually training about airmanship, right? And so the first one I got up and I said, I've done all this research. This is where it was born. And, and everybody in the audience was paying pretty close attention. And these were like the deans and the senior professors of the academe. These were bright, serious men and women from the University Aviation Association. I was doing really good. And then I, I, so I pretty much explained the whole model where it came from, my research methods and everything. And, and I got these guys, they're, they're kind of leaning forward. And, uh, and then I put up a second slide that said, you know, I've evaluated a lot of your university curriculums. I've even evaluated my Air Force um, curriculum. And I'm here to tell you that this is airmanship and we're only teaching about a third of it, maybe 32 to 33% of what your curriculum currently offers represents what holistic airmanship is. And all those people that were leaning forward suddenly leaned back, they folded their arms, and I could literally feel the frost come across the room toward me. And so I kind of wish I wouldn't have put up that slide, but I had to. I had to, right? Because I had to, I had to call them to action, which is that real next step of moving any idea forward, right? You can't just put it forward. And here's, here's why. Um, there's a status quo that every, every new idea is going to come up against. Right? In my case, the status quo was huge. Every pilot training organization in the world pretty much trained airmanship the same way. And there's a, there's a quote from author Upton Sinclair that said, it's hard to get someone to understand anything new when his or her paycheck depends on them not understanding that, right? These people were so vested in the status quo, and I had put data in front of them that said what you're doing isn't serving the need, that they had no opportunity to do anything but resist it, and that they did. Uh, I recall very, very well the comment that uh, that one of the deans, who went on to be a very dear friend of mine over the years, made to me. He said, Tony, we see absolutely nothing. And I think I speak for all of us here. We see nothing in your presentation that would change a single thing in the curriculum that we are currently training and have trained uh, tens of thousands of pilots for our industry but thank you for your time. It's been very interesting. Go away, little flea. So I said, okay. 
and I went away and I was a little butthurt and pouty. Uh, but that's where a lot of ideas die, right? Right there, after the awakening, when you hit that initial resistance, right? So, so what do you do with that, right? What do you do with that? You, you have to do one of two things. You either table it for now until the world changes and it's more ready to accept your, um, your idea. And depending on how revolutionary or how much change your idea represents and how much of the status quo it threatens, uh, that may be a long time. That may be forever. Or you could do something different. You could say that is the obstacle and the obstacle is the way. And that's a quote from Marcus Aurelius. Actually, the quote goes something like, uh, the impediment to action advances the action. What stands in the way becomes the way. And that's been shortened in uh, Twitter land to say the obstacle is the way. But anyways, that's that was my modality, being a uh, Air Force trained bomber pilot, um, what stands in the way becomes the way, right? So, so I took the fight um, to those guys. But how do you do that when I have no power? I'm a little Air Force Academy assistant professor at the time. Eventually, I'd be an associate professor. That's a little rank climb for those of you that uh, care about academic titles. But I was nobody, right? And so here comes the third piece of the teamwork or collaboration that will take your idea to the next level or any idea to the next level. Um, a, a, a short lady came up to me after that presentation and said, I thought what you said was fascinating. And I know there's not a lot of change agents here in, in the University Aviation Association, but I'm not from them. I am an acquisitions editor from McGraw-Hill. And we would like to publish your book, and we would like you to write it for pilots, not academics. And I thought, now there's an idea. So, so my idea was, let's redefine the definition of this, and we'll get all these big academic minds to agree, and we'll move the industry forward. That was not going to happen. All of a sudden, her idea comes in full force right beside me and says, let's not write it for academics. Let's write it for pilots. So that's what we did. So I wrote the book. It came out in uh, 1995. It was called Redefining Airmanship. And within 30 days, it went to number one in the aviation trade industry. And it remains in print today, and it's still in the top 10. It remained number one in the aviation trade industry for two and a half years till I wrote my second book, which was a shorter version of one chapter of the first book. That book was called Flight Discipline. Am I gloating? Not yet, but I'm about to. Um, because winning with ideas is so much fun. Today, that book, Redefining Airmanship, is a primary textbook in many of the universities that dismissed my, my idea out of hand 25 years ago. So ideas take time to mature, right? You have to move from that inspiration, that dopamine-fueled excitement that, hey, I'm really onto something here. You have to be able to overcome the resistance, and sometimes that means modifying your idea a little bit or somebody else coming in to, to build with you uh, on that idea. And then you've got you've to stay the course because the resistors will fall slowly as early adopters come on board with your idea. So, so the next thing I want to do here is I want to take a, a short break 
and do our segment on Blue Threat Proverbs. And if you remember from the last Blue Threat Proverb we did uh, on our last podcast, we're going to do one of these every time, and hopefully it'll have something to do with what we are, uh, we're talking about. Today is Blue Threat Proverb number 12. And it says, when, where instinct and intuition fail, intellect must venture. Intellect is the byproduct of ideas. Ideas that others have given to you as part of your education, ideas and experiences that you've learned from the real world. And far too often today, people will say, well, that's not in my experience base, so I really can't be responsible for moving forward on that. And there's another blue threat proverb out there that says you can analyze the past, but you have to design the future. And both of these are sort of go hand in hand. Um, this messy business of thinking through things is part of what being only human is about, right? And ideation, coming up with ideas. Uh, maybe ChatGPT could come up with a thousand ideas on what airmanship could be or should be or could have even back then if it existed. But it would never have that human element that combined with another human element from a publisher that took resistance from academic institutions and navigated and wove the way through until we now truly understand airmanship in a way that we didn't before that idea uh, popped into my mind, all based on something, uh, a tragedy that happened on a moonless night in November 1992. So that is sort of the life cycle of an idea, but there's still another stage. And quite frankly, the airmanship uh, project hasn't reached this stage yet. The the final stage is idea maturity, decline, transformation, or death, right? There comes a time when the old way itself has become the obstacle to new ways. And, and when that time comes, and it happens in the life cycle of every idea, maybe it's a technological idea, right? Uh, think, of, think back to uh, personal computers. Right? We all had to have a desktop, and then we all had to have a laptop, and then we had to have an iPad, and now we can do it all with our phone. Right? Technology advances, and that's pretty easy to see new things wash through. But when you're thinking about other types of ideas, like conceptual ideas, what is excellence? Right? What is good? What is evil? What, what, is, uh, what is a reasonable level of motivation look like? I mean, these are, these are things that we all struggle with day in and day out. Those are a little bit harder to move on. If you got a new technology, the old technology is going to get pushed out of the way. If you have a new idea about how people think, that's different, right? Because old ideas die very, very hard. So we have a choice to make when we want to present a new idea about human performance. Have, have the old ideas reached this saturation point, right? I'll use another quick aviation example. Um, there's a team training program out there that's been around since the uh, early 1980s. It's called CRM, Crew Resource Management. Definition of it is uh, using all available resources to safely accomplish the mission. And at the center of it is about how we identify threats and errors and how everybody has to uh, be willing and able to speak up and have their voices heard, and therefore we're going to make better deep team decisions, right? There's a lot more to it than that, but not much has changed out of that um, over the past 25 years. 
Well, now in aviation, while authoritarian captains not listening to junior co-pilots or first officers back in the 1980s was the problem, nowadays it's not so much that. It's all kinds of things. It's a, a whole generation of new pilots coming in, flying with each other. There are, some people are flying two generations removed from anybody they've ever known, right? we got people that are flying with young people young enough to be their grandchildren and vice versa. We have diversity and inclusion coming into the cockpit. It's not a man's, white man's world there anymore, right? And on top of it all, we got all these mental health problems going on in society, but aviation has always been one of the highest stressful uh, occupations in the world. So you know what we have going on that that represents the greatest resource to uh, to use to safely accomplish the mission? The mental health and psychological strength of the pilots, right? But that's not included in anything they get right now. I mean, they should, sure, they still have the human performance helplines they can call if they're feeling sad or angry or suicidal or whatever, but their basic required training doesn't deal with it, right? So I had an idea. So this one's in the early phases, right? What if I took CRM and I kept some of the core elements in there, but then we infused it with psychological strength and psychological safety concepts, right? So that everyone, no matter who they were, black, white, woman, 22-year-old, uh, 65-year-old, had the same social skills, had the same um, abilities to... Uh, cross-communicate across those lines, and more importantly, the emotional and psychological strength, the resolve and resilience to push through tough times when those things broke down. What what if we could blend an old idea and a new idea? I don't know how that's going to work, but what I'm what I'm pointing out here is that CRM as a as a basic human factors concept is in decline, and it's frankly a little bit moldy. And if it doesn't get transformed, eventually it's going to it's going to go by the wayside or it's already become, in many cases, a tick-the-box exercise. So ideas never have to die. And, and so we've talked about organizational ones. I probably spent too much time talking about aviation stuff, but it's who I am and where I came from. But if you look at it through things that we all recognize, how the calligraphy of Stephen Jobs turned into an iPod, first a, a Macintosh computer, and, uh, and then an Apple computer, and, and then an iPod, and then an iPhone, and now people stand in line to get iPhone 23X Super or something. It's, it's become not just idea generation, but idea transformation built into the idea itself. What a concept, huh? If you built in an idea that gave itself life, that's what Apple did. That's what Apple does. So that's one of the first things to realize about how to make an idea become immortal. Don't let it die. Have part of that process, that concept of execution, include what's new, what's next, right? The second thing we can talk about is reinvention, right? How can we reinvent an idea when circumstances and times change? My example on CRM for modern times is an example of reinvention. CRM was good, is good, but the world has changed. The world has moved on. So could it be reinvented or do we need to throw it in the scrapyard of ideas and come up with something completely different? Ideas, well-crafted ideas, 
that are capable of flexible change are immortal. They take hold, they shape the way the world operates or the world understands something. And that never dies even after we do. You know? And through our ideas, even maybe we can achieve a bit of immortality. So it's time for takeaways and wrap-ups here on the life cycle of an idea. First of all, ideas are, in my humble opinion, definitively human. Now, lots of artificial intelligence capability there to generate things that came from humans originally and give you all sorts of packets of things to consider. But the truly great ones, the truly great ideas, I think spring from our minds, right? Remember, they spring from our minds because we expose ourselves to different experiences. We give ourselves enough blank mind time, maybe outdoors, maybe in something else you enjoy doing, listening to jazz or whatever, where we're not cramming something into our head, we're letting something come out of it. So that's the birth. We need to nourish newborn ideas. How do we do that? We think about them hard. This is when the, the, the dopamine and adrenaline starts to kick in. We begin to conceptualize what this might mean to us, our families, our organization, society in general. And we begin to construct it, right? It's, it's, we're, we're nourishing it as it grows. And as it grows, you know, its bones grow, its muscles grow, and it takes on some sort of organic, beautiful nature as something that might make a difference, right? An idea that might make a difference. And then eventually we find the resistance. That's, that's the third thing, man. When you come up against uh, folks who, who understanding something new, uh, they can't because all they do is something old, right? And, and how are you going to overcome that? Are you going to go through them? Are you going to go around them? You're going to find an ally like I did with McGraw-Hill and decide, hey, forget the academics. Let's take this who really matters, the pilots themselves. And then it backflowed into academia. Uh, so how are you going to overcome that? That's like full adulthood, uh, young adulthood for an idea. And then finally, how do you keep it fresh? Do you transform it? Do you reinvent it? Um, is it something that has literally changed the way that we understand, we act, we behave, whatever? Good ideas never die, right? And if you know that, um, they may have to go into hibernation for a while, but if you, you know that and you keep track of them and you truly believe in the power of ideas, uh, all you have to do is wait for, wait for the right moment and, and the right person. All right. Well, we covered a lot of ground there in a pretty big hurry. Uh, that's, uh, that's a wrap on episode three of Only Human, where if you haven't figured this out yet, we believe in the power of one. We believe that each of us can uh, and must learn to make the most of not only the blessings we've been given, but the challenges uh, we face. Uh, challenges are opportunities for us to grow. Right? So uh, this is number three. Uh, supposedly, that's a fir the first one I thought was like uh, not so good. Second one I thought not so bad. Number three, I thought this is where we're really going to hit our uh, hit our stride. So please uh, consider following our podcast, uh, like it, share it widely, uh, promote it, whatever else you can do to get the word out uh, what we're doing together. Like always, uh, it's really important that I get your feedback uh, because I grow from feedback, be it good feedback or bad feedback. And I hope to see you next time when we're going to talk about two very similar sounding words, we're going to get a little bit into mental health. I'll give you that ahead of time. Uh, and those similar sounding words are resilience and resolve. Right? And why, why they're critical to the well-being and sanity 
of everyone in this crazy world we live in today. Uh, okay, I'm Tony Kern. I appreciate all you to all y'all, all y'all uh, who took the time out of your valuable day to listen in. Uh, I know you're busy. Uh, please keep the feedback coming because after all, I'm only human. See you soon.